Open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. While you do that, there's one thing I'd like you to see this morning. What I'd like you to see is the connection between forgiveness and love. Forgiveness and love. Often we think of these things as two separate things, but this morning we're going to see how they're inseparably tied together. There's no way to, to separate the two. When you have forgiveness, you have the other. By way of background for our passage, I'd like you to draw your attention to Luke chapter 6. This is Luke's rendition of the Sermon on the Mount, which has found more fuller form in, in Matthew 5 to 7. But here in this passage, what Luke does is he puts this part here, the final end of the, the Sermon on the Mount, and in verse 46 it reads this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And do not what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I'll show you what he's like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation when the stream broke against it. Immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are those who want to build our lives on your word, to do the things that you require, not out of fear, but out of love. We pray as we study this passage, you would give us wisdom and insight into how you have forgiven us and how we love you. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Right after this section... The distinction being, if we do what he asks, it's the, it's what he wants. The life that we live results on, then answering that question, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I, do what I tell you? In the next section, we find that Jesus is doing several things. First off, there's a, a, sir, a, a centurion who has a servant who is sick. At the point of death, we find out. And as we read through chapter 7 in the beginning verses, we find out that this centurion is a good guy. He's helped out the nation of Israel. But then what happens is that Jesus says, okay, I'll go. And then this, uh, the centurion sent friends. He doesn't even go himself. He says, hey, do you know, I'm not worthy that you should come. Why don't you just do the, say the word and he'll be healed? Of course, that that is such great faith is that, you see, Jesus' power is not bound by him being there physically. Jesus' power transcends space. And so what happens is, is that the centurion says, just say the word, and Jesus says, what great faith. Soon afterwards, Jesus is walking through a town called Nain. And there's a great crowd, and as he's entering, there's someone that's being carried out in a coffin. And we find out that through Luke's narrative that this man has died. And it's the only son of his mother, who's a widow. And we find out that as we know the culture and we think that this man who has died is the only support this woman has. And as you would understand, it's a very harsh culture. 
If there's no support from, the, from a man who can earn the living, because the women were not allowed to work in that day, then where would her support come from? She'd be a beggar on the street, depending on the mercy of others, which may or may not come. So Jesus stops the procession. And in a word, he raises the man from the dead. And says, young man, I say to you, arise. The man sits up and he gives him his mother. Fear and glory, glorification of God seizes the crowd. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And so Jesus, whether it's healing a servant of a centurion or raising from the dead the only son of a widow, Jesus is there. Jesus is sensitive to what's going on. At that point, disciples of John the Baptist show up. John's been imprisoned. And they, decide, they ask him the question, you know, are you the one who's to come or shall we look for another? John the Baptist has sent us to find out. Jesus answers them in verse 22. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear and their dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed are the one who's not offended by me. What happens is that Jesus begins to show them exactly what who he is. And what happens is, is that in that flurry of activity that they've seen and uh, observed is the healing of many, the, the sickness, the raising from the dead. This is all fantastic happenings. So why is this person here? Well, John, uh, as the disciples of John leave, Jesus goes on and begins to extol the virtues of John the Baptist. And he talks about John whom he has sent and that there's no greater than John in verse 28. But then there's a, the curious parenthetical note that Luke inserts in verses 29 and 30. And Luke writes this, When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just or righteous, having been baptized with the Baptist of John. That's great. But, ooh, what's happening? But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. Then John, then Luke then has Jesus describing how John came and they rejected him. John was an ascetic. John was a man who, you know, would not eat, you know, a lot of extra food and he wouldn't drink wine and they said he has a demon. But Jesus did come. Jesus did eat and Jesus did drink wine and they call him a glutton. Yet the, the whole idea is that regardless of who God sent, whether it was John, the ascetic, or Jesus, the friend of sinners, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers rejected him. All thinking about that passage in, earlier in chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things that I tell you? So that's what happens. And we realize that in those days, we'll see that there are people called Pharisees, and they're not bad people, generally. So you see, the Pharisees are probably, we don't know their exact origin, but they probably came during the time of the, the exile, when the land of Israel was under siege because of their disobedience. The people were taken out of the southern kingdom, the land of Judah, and brought to Babylon. When they were brought to Babylon, they were away from the temple. There is no place to worship God. There is no place to do the sacrifices or the rituals of the temple. 
How will they know the word of God? The priests were in charge of telling the people the word of God. So there, but, and they failed. So there arose a lay movement of people who were not priests, who studied the law. And in so doing, they studied and studied and knew the law better than anyone. They were the faithful ones of God's people. They became the teachers of God's people when there was no temple, when they were in exile. When they came back to the land, they were still the teachers. And knowing the law better than anybody and teaching the law, they garnered great respect. And as often happens, they began to think it's about them and not about God. They began to think their knowledge of the law exalted them high above the people and made them somehow better than people. And they began to think that somehow they were excluded from the judgment of God because of all that they did. And the people who did not know the law, these people, were people were sinners because they did not know the law. But they who knew the law were not sinners. They were above the law. So when Jesus came and Luke wrote that curious note about the Pharisees and the lawyers in verse 30, they rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. And then as we come to our passage in verse 36, we're reading the story of a meal, a simple meal. And we see this in verse 36. And one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Jesus has been invited to the home of the Pharisee for a meal. And as the usual custom, he would have, as he entered the home, he would have taken off his sandals and have found a place to sit. The tables in those days were not tables which were raised up and you put in chairs. The tables in those days were actually fairly close to the ground. You've probably, you may have been in houses like that, where rather than sit on chairs, they sit on the ground. And as they sat there, they would probably put their arm out like this, uh, somewhat around the table. And they would take their hand and they would eat with this. So as they sat, they were sat reclining at table. They'd be leaning over. The food would be on the table and they would just eat like this. Where did their feet go? Their feet would be probably curled underneath and behind them, out of the way. You see, the dusty streets of, of Jerusalem and the cities around it, they, you, wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't want to see people's dusty feet near your food, would you? And so they, you would put them behind you where no one would see them. You come to a house and you would expect that, you know, you, wouldn't, you don't expect people to put their feet on their table at your house, right? Okay? And so they didn't either. So that was the situation. The, me, the meal is served. And, and something strange happens. This woman enters the, the house. She's not invited. What's she doing here? Verse 37 and 38. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wipe his feet with her tears, and wiping them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. This woman is only identified as a woman of the city. Hmm, strange. What does that mean? She's a sinner. 
Likely she's a prostitute. Likely she's a harlot. Likely she's one that is not known for anything other than she's a sinner. That's how Luke identifies her. That's how everybody identified her. She's standing behind Jesus as Jesus is reclined eating. And as she stands there, she begins to cry. So much so that her tears fall upon Jesus' feet as she's rightly behind him. On his dirty, dusty feet come these tears. And as she sees her tears hit his feet, she begins to bend down and she wipes his feet with her hair. Cleansing away the dust that has accumulated, her tears washing them away. And as his feet are being cleansed, she then anoints and honors him with pouring the ointment on his feet. You know, her acts must have caught everybody by surprise because you see this thing happening. And then, as you know that, you know, as a woman of the night, as a prostitute, they didn't have banks in those days. They didn't have safety deposit boxes. It's almost as if you look at, you know, the homeless people in our day. Everything they own is in a shopping cart. Everything owned, they carry with them. They don't leave it behind unless someone steal it. She carried everything that she owned in a little bottle. Everything that she worked for and gave herself to and gave herself up to was in that little bottle. So she carried it out and she unflasked it and she poured it on his feet. For her tears were not enough to wash away the dirt. So she would now make his feet not just clean, but aromatic. She was pouring her life on his feet. And as she did that, the perfume must have filled the air. And everybody knew what was going on. There's the smell. Where's that smell coming from? Oh, it's her. What's she doing over there? Well, the Pharisee has a thought about this too. Look in uh, verse 39. This is his house. What's going on? And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman who is touching him. For she's a sinner. You see, for the Pharisee, sin was external. Sin was communicated by touch. She was a sinner. And she's touching this guy who claims to be a prophet. If he only knew what type of woman she really was, she would, he would, you know, would say, get away from me. Because he, the Pharisee knew the Levitical law. That the uncleanness was carried out by touch. So much so the people in Israel told, don't touch the unclean thing, lest you become contaminated. And there was a whole ritual about becoming clean again. And rather than go through that, he says, don't touch me. Don't touch anything that's unclean. And often there were things that are dead, things that were sinful, things that were unholy, heathenistic in the Old Testament. Don't touch them, lest you become contaminated. And that was the law. And here it was, this woman, known for her sin, was touching this guy who claimed to be a prophet from God. Surely he can't be a prophet, the Pharisee thought. For for sin is communicated by touch, isn't it? It's interesting enough that the Pharisee is saying this to himself, you know, the old, hmm, I'm seeing this, hmm. And he's just thinking. 
But you know Jesus knows his thoughts. It's interesting. Because it says here in verse 40, Jesus says, answering him. But Simon hasn't said anything. But Jesus is answering him. He says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he says, say it, teacher. If you're going to be a teacher, you're a teacher of the law, I'm a teacher of the law. Okay, what do you got to say? So Jesus goes on, and rather than pointing out something that Simon's thinking about, he tells him a story. He tells him a parable. And it's a very simple one. A certain money lender had two debtors. One, two. Oh, pretty easy, you see. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, and the other 50. 550. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? You know, it's a very simple question, isn't it? We think about that, that there, there are two things here happening. And a denarii, as you know, is a day's wage for the average worker. The denarii was the amount of money you needed to buy food for yourself and your family for one day. So what he's saying is that one guy owned, owed the moneylender 500 days worth of food, or a year and a half's worth of food for his family. The other guy owed 50, about a month and a half worth of food. And when you think about it, it's, it's one of those things where you realize how people could get into debt. And in those days, you know, one guy only 500, one owed 50, that there were different ways that they were allowed to collect the debt in those days. Simple way is that, well, if you can't pay me back, you've got to sell everything you have to pay that debt. And so the, the moneylender could go to the authorities and say, take everything he's got, sold it, and see how much he got. If that wasn't enough, he could do this. Okay, if he can't pay with what he has... Then he has to pay with what he is. So he has to become a servant to work off that bill. And if he can't do it, I want you to sell his wife and his kids. And the authorities would do it. So much great is that debt that the guy had who says a year and a half of wages. How can I pay that back? I, I don't have enough things. Would you indeed sell me and my family? The guy who had 50 also had a predicament. Maybe it's not as big as this one, but he had a trouble too. But this money lender is no like, like no other. And this probably struck the Pharisee. He says the money lender cancel the debt. And that's the ESV. And when you look at the term cancels the debt, the term actually translated canceled doesn't mean to cross out. It means to show grace. It means to fill up. What happens is, is that the, the term there isn't like the, the debt never existed. It's like the debt was paid. And in this case, when you to cancel out someone's debt, the person owes this amount of money. Who pays? The money lender. The money lender pays the debt himself. That's owed to himself. He paid it off. It's not like the debt never existed. It was there. 
It was just filled with grace. The term canceled is the term charizomai. And it means to fill with grace, to put grace in a, in, in a place where it, doesn't, it isn't before, really, in this case. So the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees is very simple. Now, which of them will love him more? You know, perhaps you're taken back as I am. I mean, I'm thinking, you know, hey, someone forgives me a debt. I'm, I'm grateful, right? You're grateful. Someone forgives you a debt, you're grateful. But loving? Really? You know, like, it's like this. You know, if, you, if a friend buys you dinner, what? You're grateful, right? You nod yes, you're, like you're listening to me and not just staring at me, okay? Yes, if someone buys you dinner, you're grateful, right? Is that right? If, if someone, you know, buys you a car, ooh, if someone buys you a car, are you grateful? Yes, and you're delighted, right? Right? Say someone buys you a house. How do you feel? You're suspicious. <laughs> okay, you've gone way past grateful and delighted. You're, oh, what's going on here? Why are they doing that? This person's buying this guy a house. Why would any money lender cancel that large a debt? And it's interesting to know that we go on. Simon answers the question in verse 47. He says, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Does that make sense? And he says this. You have judged, Jesus comments, you have judged rightly. Hey, you got it right. And then what happens is, is that what Jesus is po- po- forcing the Pharisee to see, Simon to see, is that there's a relationship between the people, between the money lender and the one borrowing the money, that when there's a cancellation of the debt, there's a relationship that's developed, a relationship that's already there, perhaps. So what happens is this. He says, the Pharisee understands that the one whose larger debt is, li- is forgiven is likely to be the one who loves more. And Jesus agrees with the answer. And then Jesus applies his answer, the parable, to the woman. And note this in verse 44. But look at where Jesus is looking and look who he's talking to. In verse 44, then turning toward the woman... He said to Simon, who's he looking at? The woman. Who's he talking to? Simon. And so what's happening is that Jesus, as he looks on the woman, he's talking to Simon back here, and he's pointing out something. He, he's, he, like like it, Jesus' eyes are not meeting Simon's eyes, that it's about you or me. Jesus' eyes are fixed on the woman over here. And I'm talking to you because I want you to follow my eyes on her. You know, performers know that, right? You know, you ever see a solo on a choral a group? If there's ever a solo on a choral group, everybody in the choral group looks toward the soloist because they want every fo- eye focused on the soloist. And so what happens, they don't want you focused on me. I don't stare at you. I, fo- I stare at this vocalist because I want you to follow my eyes. What Jesus wants the Pharisee to do is follow his eyes to the woman. And as he talks to Simon, he says these words. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
Perhaps you're familiar with a custom. If someone comes into their house, the the master of the house, the the person who owned the house, would provide a, a bowl of water and a towel, and leave it by the front door so anybody coming to their house could just sit down and wash their feet before they go to eat. Before we, they would trounce the dirt all around someone's house. Uh, perhaps in your custom, as are, as are in our place, we have people take off their shoes before they come in, lest they trounce around our house all the stuff that they accumulate walking through the streets of San Francisco. It's not we don't, you know, hopefully you're wearing new socks and stuff like that. That would be kind of nice for us, too. And But we have little cases where you put your shoes and stuff like that. And if you're not, if you're not careful, I start moving your shoes around. That's okay, because I like to do that. And so what happens is, is that you, someone would come to your house, invite you for a meal, right? And they would say, hey, you want to wash up? You want to wash your hands? The restroom's over here, right? Isn't that true? That's what you normally do. Because people don't eat with, with dirty hands. In those days, they don't want to eat necessarily with dirty feet. So you would have you know, a bowl of water and a towel ready for anybody who comes to your house. If it was a guest of honor, you would do this. You would provide a servant. And the servant would wash their feet for them. They would sit in a chair near the door, and someone else would kneel down. And as a servant, would begin to wash their feet so that their feet was clean. That's what you would do. But Simon didn't do either. He didn't provide a pail of water or a towel. He didn't provide a servant at all. But this woman, this woman that you've pointed out has come, and she has not stopped crying. She has not stopped washing my feet with her tears and wiping it with her hair. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Perhaps you have this custom in your house too, that when a close relative comes in, you hug them and you kiss them. I know I do that with our kids. You know, when they come home, I'm so delighted to see our kids that I will kiss them and they'll kiss back. It's a custom that we've, we've had for the life that they've been born. We've been kissing them that long. We're not going to stop just because they're adults. And it's that idea that this, that Simon did not greet Jesus with a kiss. The term kiss in the New Testament is actually related to the term which comes out as friend. It's a friendly gesture. Paul closes his letters at times to greet one another with a holy kiss. It's not meant to be anything romantic or anything above that. It's a sign of friendship. For the term kiss in the New Testament comes from the term friend. So he says there, you haven't, you know, you've not kissed me and created me with that honor. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. She's continued to honor Jesus with her kisses. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. You know, traditionally, if someone would come in their house, they would perhaps anoint their head with the, the common olive oil of the day. It wasn't expensive. It wasn't extravagant. But in the hot sun of Israel, you would figure that their hair would you know, begin to dry out and stuff, and you want to restore a little of the oil. You know, you guys use a conditioner once in a while, the ones that still have hair, you guys. You know, um, I'm losing mine, but, you know. I had to point that out. Some of the guys without hair don't use conditioner. They save a little bit of money. That's okay. But you put a little conditioner, and you, what happens is it restores the moisture of your hair, correct? The oil would do the same thing. And as they, as they did that, he's, Jesus says, you know, you did not anoint my head with oil, which is the highest honor, 
But she has anointed my feet with ointment. She has, she has not given me common olive oil for my head. She's given me expensive ointment for my feet. Jesus isn't trying to shame this guy into being more culturally sensitive or, you know, being more hospitable. Jesus is pointing out what this woman is doing and why she's doing it. So he says in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but the general principle is, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. In describing this woman, Jesus does not just downplay her sinfulness. He doesn't say, oh, she's okay. She doesn't say that she never offended anybody. Everyone in town knows she's a sinner. Jesus more so than anybody in that town. Jesus knew the, the number of sins, the place of the sins, the depth of the sins. Jesus knew it all. He's God. But what everyone in town did not know that her sins had been forgiven. A couple of things about that term, forgiven. First off, the basic term forgiven is a, is a term which means to abandon. It means to forsake. It means to leave behind. The song that we sung the, this morning, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he moved our sins from us, from Psalm 103, 12, is what God has done with our sin. And what Jesus has already done with her sin. Ephemi, forgiven, means to abandon. It means to forsake. It means to leave behind. It means to separate from someone. But the tense that Jesus uses is the perfect tense. And you've heard from this pulpit several times. The perfect tense means a past action with continuing results. Past action, continued results. What Jesus says is that her sins have already been forgiven in the past. She's received forgiveness from Jesus before she cried. Before she poured the ointment. She had already been forgiven. The ointment, the, the weeping, the kissing, was a response to forgiveness. Not the cause of forgiveness. That's important to note. This woman is not forgiven because of her repentant acts of crying and weeping. She is being forgiven because her debt had been paid. Her debt had been paid by the one whose feet she was wiping. Her tears are not tears of sadness, of fear. Her tears are tears of gratitude and love. Forgiveness breeds love. Forgiveness opens the door to love. The moneylender did not cancel the debt and show grace to debtors because they loved him. But the debtors do love the moneylender after their debt has been forgiven. When we look at, it, look at it, we find that Jesus ends the story by speaking to the woman. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Of course, this provokes a response for those who hear this. Then those who are at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this 
who even forgives sins. And the point here isn't so much that, you know, these people are incredulous, these people are, uh, are, are less than good. The point is that what Luke wants us to see is to answer the question ourselves. For the question they ask is, is good. Who is this who even forgives sins? And everybody in that culture knows, and everybody in our culture knows, only God can forgive sins. For all sins are against God. Every offense is against God. And only God can forgive sins. So who must this person be? Who is this person who healed the centurion's servant from far away? Who is this person who raised that only son from the dead? Who is this person who healed in sickness and preached the gospel to the poor? Who is this person? He is God and God alone. So in verse 50, Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That peace that he gives her is not temporary. It's not one of those conditional things, well, you know, you have peace until you mess up again. God has no beef with this woman. God isn't expecting that somehow she would clean up her act and get her life right. She does not owe any debt to God. Why? Because grace has filled that void left by an insurmountable debt. Grace has filled the void. The blood of Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for her sin. She can now go in peace because the debt has been paid. There's no collection agency chasing her. There's no more badgering of her. She can go in peace because she has peace from God. Well, the woman's story is our story, isn't it? We have come to God with an insurmountable debt. You see, our sin created a debt, didn't it? And as time gone on, you know, you might have that fifty cent, that sense of the fifty denarii debt, you know, that that wage that you have done. But as you live life, you realize that you don't have that fifty. You have a five hundred denarii debt that's been accumulating for years. And every time you and I sin, every time you and I think a wrong thought or say a wrong word or do a wrong deed, our debt just begins to accumulate a top on top of it. A debt that we none of us can get out of. And if this debt would accumulate higher and higher, the longer you live, your debt, your pile of debt reaches the sky. And there's no way for you to pay off this debt. Unless the one to whom you owe the debt says, I'll take care of it. That person paid your debt. That person, God, paid your debt in the blood of Jesus Christ. So that debt that you had goes down to zero. That giant hole which you owed has been filled by God's grace. You see, that's how forgiveness works. Our debt that we owe to God has been filled because God has given us grace. God hasn't made it that like that the sin never existed. Sin exists. Our sin exists. But our sin has been paid for through God's grace, the blood of Christ. Our debt is huge. We need grace. We need forgiveness. 
In the mind of God, I think of it like this. God's love gave us his grace, right? The reason we have grace is because God decided to love us. This grace that God gave us canceled our debt. This grace that God gave us filled that hole, paid that check. We've received forgiveness. God has abandoned his claim on us because he's paid it himself. In return, we love God. Love gives rise to forgiveness, doesn't it? Love gives rise to God giving the grace and forgiving In return, in response, forgiveness gives rise to love. John said it this way, we love God because he first loved us. In that first loving of us, God looked at our debt and said, you can't pay that. I'll pay it for you. And when he did that, we respond in love. Yes, we're grateful. Yes, we're delighted. At times, we're suspicious. But our natural response, God brings us to the point of loving him. The same truth applies to human relationships. When we forgive others, we take upon ourselves the debt they owe us. Right? We offer grace. And in return, when we forgive others, we receive love back. Example, father of, uh, a husband offends his wife. That ever happened? Yeah. Father, a husband offends his wife and asks for forgiveness. Hmm, she thinks. She forgives him. She fills his debt of offense with grace and love. She doesn't hold him to it. She fills it up herself with her grace. And she shows him love. In return, he loves her even more. Having understood that she has filled in his debt... He responds and loves her even more. She sees God. He sees God's character in her. She, he is a renewed loyalty to him. The Old Testament term of, of uh, loving kindness, I love it. And you're in any of my classes, you hear me talk about hesed. Loyal love, love born out of loyalty. With that forgiveness that he has received, he's more loyal to her than ever. A father sins against a child. The father asks his child for forgiveness. The child forgives him, offering grace. Family love deepens, being built more unlike being Jesus Christ. That's how it works. Now, we have all sorts of reasons why we don't forgive, don't we? You got your list. Some of the times we say, well, you know, we're not going to ask forgiveness. Why? Well, he started it, didn't he? Um, it's not my fault. She's as much to blame as me. See, we share the blame. I'm not going to be the one to ask for forgiveness. Or maybe it's like this. Oh, I don't want to be his friend anymore. It's not worth it. The effort to forgive, ask forgiveness, just, just, just abandon the relationship. Just leave it. That's why we don't ask for forgiveness. What about why we don't give forgiveness? Why don't we give people forgiveness when they ask for it? Well, we say things like this. I'll forgive him. If I forgive him now, he'll just do it again, won't he? You know, he needs to learn his lesson. But you think to yourself, if I don't forgive him, what lesson is he learning? What's he learning about me? What's he learning about God? 
Sometimes we don't forgive because we feel, I'm just too hurt. I don't want to think about it. I'll never be able to do trust her again. Or I'll forgive him, but he has to re-earn my trust. I'm going to put him on parole. I'm going to put him in, I don't know, waiting. I'll take this stance. I'll wait and see. Yeah, I'll say the words, I forgive you. But I want to, I want to see proof. I'm not going to fill the debt of your sin. You're going to have to fill it over the next three months. You're thinking that, right? Or I'll forgive her when she turns her act around. When she gets right, I'll do it. I'll do my part when she does her part. Up until that time, I'm not going to do it. Does that reflect the heart of God? No one denies the hardship and pain of sin. Sins that have been committed against us. Sins that we commit against other people. So we think about that. Forgiveness is really hard. Forgiving and being forgiving, asking forgiveness. But Jesus' words pull us in another direction. We understand in Matthew 6 that we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, right? We're to freely give the forgiveness that we've received. There's no reason to ever hold back forgiveness. There's no reason to ever not fill up the debt that's been owed to us, like that money lender. There's never a reason because we are to reflect God and to treat others as God has treated us. And on a side note, I'd like to think about how asking forgiveness is not the same as making an apology, right? You guys know that, correct? You guys know that? Asking forgiveness is not the same as making an apology. And one of the key things is, is this. Do you know the term apology comes from a Greek term? Oh, yeah, it does. It comes from a Greek term to make a defense. How's that sound? Because apologies sound like this, don't they? I'm sorry that you misunderstood. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you misunderstood. Or, I'm sorry that you found out about it. How's that? I'm sorry that you were offended. See, it's your problem, not me, clearly. Where's the focus of the apology? On you, not on me. See, I'm apologizing that you have a problem. Isn't that great? Certainly, it's not me. Asking for forgiveness sounds more like this. I was wrong to say, and then you fill it in, to you. I should have been more considerate of your situation. I should have been more considerate of your your feelings. I've sinned against you. I've created this debt that I owe you. And I can't pay it. Will you forgive me? Will you put the grace in that hole that I've dug? And bring us back to a restored relationship. The one granting forgiveness will fill the debt with grace that comes from love. That's what God did. We owed an insurmountable debt. God filled it up with grace. In response, the one who is forgiven, the one who has asked forgiveness and received it, will respond in love. So where forgiveness abounds, so does love. 
where forgiveness is sparse, there is no love. It's a business arrangement. If you want, uh, do you want to see love abound in your life? Okay, three people are nodding. The rest of you are nodding off. Okay. Do you want to see love abound in your life? Yeah. First thing, understand that God has loved you and has graciously paid your debt. Respond to God in love and gratitude. Second, humble yourself. Seek forgiveness when you offend other people. Ask them to provide the grace that you need. And humble yourself by freely forgiving others that offend you. In return, what you'll find is love. For forgiveness opens the door to love. Forgiveness and love are tied together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the woman in her boldness came to Jesus, our Savior. And in the moment, she was not embarrassed to come in a stranger's home, not embarrassed to be known as a woman, a sinner. But because she had received forgiveness, that her debt of sin was canceled, filled in, paid by the blood of Christ, she came and provided an example for us. We thank you. As we continually depend on your forgiveness of our sins, we are so much more drawn to who you are and to love you even more. And if those who offend and need to ask for forgiveness, and as those who need to grant forgiveness to those who offend us, we understand that forgiveness and love are tied together. We pray that you may work in our lives, that we may reflect the love that you have for us toward one another and to the world who needs to know so much more about your son, Jesus Christ, to be saved. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.